Welcome to this production of Source Wellness's The Intersection Podcast. Every month, Source Wellness co-founders Jacob Aqua and Marshall Kupkamore dive deep into the intersection of DEIMW, diversity, equity, inclusion, mindfulness, and wellness, for the purpose of cultivating human-centered cultures of well-being within corporations and nonprofits. We host discussions with subject matter experts in order to explore how each of these five components work together to cultivate a sense of well-being, inclusion, and equity in company culture. These discussions are held live for the public in webinar format and are repurposed for this podcast. If you're interested in attending these live webinars, click the link in our bio to our LinkedIn page where you can register for our next monthly webinar. In this discussion, we hosted a webinar with Pamela Fan called The Importance of Curiosity for Atonement and Healing. On the DEI journey. We learned about the connection between mindfulness and environmental justice, the link between acknowledgement of injustice and wellness, and how wellness is a vehicle for atonement and healing. Pam shared how leading with inquisitiveness and openness is essential for one's effective DEIMW journey. It was so incredible having Pam on the show, and without further ado, let's get to it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Intersection webinar with a very special guest, Pamela Fan. We're so excited to have you. I am your co-host, Jacob Aqua, the Chief Mindfulness Officer of Source Wellness. And I'm the second co-host, Marshall Kupkamore, the CEO of Source Wellness. And in this episode today, we will discuss the crucial intersection of D-E-I-M-W, discovering how diversity, equity, and inclusion, mindfulness, and wellness support each other in an integrated approach that provides value to our personal and systemic growth. Source Wellness's vision is to become the most trusted and respected source of high-quality DEIMW content for organizations. We illuminate these five values by bringing programming to large companies and nonprofits our goal is to help organizations cultivate inclusive culture to help all employees feel a greater sense of belonging, experience a more meaningful work experience, and drive positive change around organizational productivity and well-being. So the way that this is going to be structured is we will start with a short practice, then we will have a discussion with our wonderful guest, Pamela Fan. So during this intersection webinar, we're going to discuss the ways in which DEIMW connect with environmental and energy justice. We'll learn about the connection between mindfulness and the recognition of injustice, the link between acknowledgement of injustice and wellness, and how wellness is a vehicle for atonement and healing. During this time, we'll be leading with inquisitiveness, as it is a foundational component of allowing ourselves to have curiosity and openness, which is essential for an effective DEI journey. And then finally, at the end, we'll have about five to 10 minutes of Q&A. So if you wouldn't mind just holding your questions till that section, we'll greatly appreciate it. And now to introduce Pam. Pam is an award-winning diversity specialist and speaker 
the founder and CEO of Integrated Solutions, which is a diversity, inclusion, and integration consulting company that develops frameworks to successfully and sustainably implement diversity within organizations. Integrated Solutions' mission is to drive industry transformation through organization, cultural competency, workforce development, caring conversations, and additional diversity advisory services. Pam is also an owner of Impact Energy, a minority and women-owned energy services company that helps organizations build strategy for their diverse spending to create economic empowerment. She has a degree in marketing, a certification in human resource management, and is a certified cultural diversity professional and trainer. She also holds a certification in understanding diversity and inclusion from Purdue University. Further, Pam served on a diversity board for more than seven years with the Coca-Cola company, and she currently serves on a variety of boards like the board of Strategic Energy Innovations, and is an author for various publications such as Energy Equity Project. That was a mouthful. We're so excited to have you, Pam, to the Intersection webinar. And yeah, I would just love to introduce Pam by opening with a practice that Pam can guide and, and we'll get right into the questions. So, yeah. Yeah, Pam, thank you so much for being here and joining us today. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Um, and I know that um, with your practices, we like to take a couple of minutes and ground everyone in the conversation and um, close our eyes and take about three deep breaths. Yeah, I'd love to lead us through the three deep breaths and then um, we'll love to hand it over to you so that you could lead us through your grounding practice. Thank you. Of course. So I'd just like to invite everyone to sit comfortably Close your eyes if that's accessible and take three deep grounding breaths. May we have a peaceful, productive, and informative conversation. Thank you. Thank you. So as part of uh, my grounding exercises, what I like to do when I have people together is ask them um, a uh, check-in question. So I love to ask, like, how are you actually arriving to this session today? So Jacob, I'll start with you. How are you arriving today? I feel grounded and energized. Yeah, grounded and energized. Thank you. Marshall, how are you arriving today? I'm arriving very, very excited because every one of our conversations together, we're like, wow, we should have recorded that. And now here we are recording it. So I'm just super excited for the conversation that is to come. I agree. And I am arriving excited to have this conversation with you. Um, just to let the people know out there, every time I have a conversation with these gentlemen, we always start out saying, okay, we need a 
you know, a quick 30 minute check in. It ends up being <laughs> usually an hour, an hour 45, an hour 30, um, because we just go down the rabbit hole of talking about this connectiveness to mindfulness um, and diversity work and um, just thinking through and talking through, uh, you know, it just is so, and it's peaceful. It brings me such peace every time we have these conversations as well. It's like, this is, this is, we, we're all really putting in the good work to make people whole. And I think that that's the important part of it because in all the work that we do, um, at the end of the day, all of our work is focused on people um, and creating wholeness and creating wellness and creating a sense of centeredness, right? And so um, as a part of that practice, the check-in question, um, people um, on the phone or on this webinar can think, um, you can utilize these questions. They're really powerful, um, whether they're with your team or with your family. When you sit down, it's a great grounding question, not just to ask, you know, how are you arriving today? How was your day? Um, or asking pinpointed questions when you're thinking of it in the form of diversity. Uh, many times I'll, you know, if it's around a holiday, like how do, do you have a holiday tradition that you'd like to share with us? Or do you, um, can you tell me what is something um, special that your, that your family likes to do during the summer? And this is a way to connect us and bring us all together so we can learn like who we, who we are as people, because we tend to go day to day, not knowing who our peers are, the people that we work with. But when you have that one checking question, and I have always advised managers to do this before every meeting, um, so if you're having a team meeting or a one-on-one -on -one meeting, just um, ask a simple, asking a simple question will really a lot of times get you to understand um, not only how your employees are showing up or how your peers are showing up, but um, how then you should also respond to them that day, that day. And you can be more mindful in how you connect with your peers. Um, and I'll just give a quick um, for instance, I know that when uh, George Floyd was murdered, um, you know, many um, Black employees were not showing up to work in the same headspace as, as their white peers. Um, and so, you know, uh, going into our, I know our team meetings and asking, how are you arriving today? Um, made all of the difference in me state being able to show up and say, I'm not in the best headspace. I don't know why this happened. I'm feeling this way. That lets my peers also, um, and informs them that I may not be ready for several just meetings about business today. There's bigger things that are happening in my life. So, you know, that check-in question um, can mean the world to someone. It lets you know that I, you know, I see, I see you, but then it also shows the people around them how to care for that person in that moment or throughout that day. Absolutely. So that's the importance of check-in questions. That's also very mindful. Right. Yeah. And it, it really shows that you're not just on default mode, that you really care that you're, really interested in how they're doing how people are doing so i want to i want to ask you a question um to start to just hear more about your journey how you've really how your past and your influences have helped you move in the direction of your current work that you're doing now i think it's been honestly is serendipitous but who would have known 
years ago that it would leave me here. So um, I've gotten to a place now where it's okay for me um, to talk about my past. I grew up in in Oklahoma, small town of Owasso, Oklahoma, which is not far outside of Tulsa. But my family, we were the very first Black family to integrate this town. Um, and when I say the very first, I mean like no post office people, mailmen, no store clerks, no grocery baggers, no teachers, no one um, aside from my family um, was there. And so, you know, it was it was really difficult. Um, I remember in the beginning being the only um, little black girl in kindergarten. My sister was a grade ahead of me and my oldest brother and sister were in high school, maybe middle school, like high school at the time. Um, so they were at different schools. But my um, next oldest sister was at the same school, but she was two, two grades over a uh, grade over me. So I didn't see her. We didn't have the same classes. We didn't see each other in the hallways, things like that. Um, we had a, we had a difficult time, um, integrating into the town, um, uh, to say the least. But I think what, what helped it is that my brother who was in high school, as I mentioned, he was like a star athlete, right? So, um, he really ended up being an all-American athlete, but really brought a, a lot of notoriety um, to the town's athletics team. And so I think that honestly was the kind of pathway that helped uh, my sisters and I kind of, we kind of followed in his spotlight, I would say. But then we started, you know, doing our own things and kind of making names for ourselves. And after a while, you know, come, uh, you know, middle school or so, it was kind of like, you know, we did have um, what I would say then was a sense of belonging. And you and I, you've all, we've all talked about that word and how I, I don't care for the word belonging, because when I think back about that now, I never have felt that I really belonged anywhere. So I, I use the word inter integration um, when I think about the belonging sense. But I did feel that sense of belonging. Um, it wasn't until my family's home was burned down by a white supremacist group um, in the late 80s, 80, 88, I believe it was. Um, and it was a jarring um, experience for our family. It was really the impetus of my parents splitting because my, my mom didn't want to leave. She had a wonderful job and my sister and I were the only two left in high school and it was all we knew. We didn't want to leave our friends. Right. Um, my father was fed up, you know, with the, the, the racism of Oklahoma and of that town and he wanted to move. So they split. Um, and for, uh, but what I, one of the things I will learn, um, I will tell you that I learned from that experience um, some of the biggest life lessons that I think I still carry with me today. Um, my, um, my passion for volunteerism because the American Red Cross were the, some of the, the first peoples on the scene and they helped us out tremendously just giving you basic care needs that you never think like, I'm gonna need a toothpaste, a toothpaste and a toothbrush and the things that you need. Um, and putting us like, supporting us in a, a hotel for a week with whatever the support they gave us. So um, I've been huge on volunteerism all my life since then. And then um, the other life lesson that I really learned was that you cannot judge a race of people by what a group of people do. 
Um, some of my best friends then were white people. My best friend to this day is a white woman. Um, and so you cannot judge a whole race by what a group of, of, of people do. Um, and that's something that I've always carried with me. And I think that that carried out through my work that I, you know, all the work that I've always done through Coca-Cola, um, you know, did a lot of volunteerism through there too, in supporting people and how I talk about diversity and how curious I am. Um, that inquisitiveness that you guys mentioned earlier, that's where I get that from. I always want to know, like, if um, a person feels a certain way about a group of people or a person feels a certain, I want to know why, like, what was it? Because if I can see that a whole group of people are not the sum, <laughs> does not equate to the sum of all of its people, um, then why can't you do that? And I'm really curious as to find out like the whys. And so I've had a lot of interesting conversations along the way um, with many people on different sides of issues. And I think that it, you know, my, my viewpoint gives me a unique perspective um, when I think about diversity. So yeah, I think that those are all the things um, that has kind of led me here, um, leaving Coca-Cola, coming into the energy industry and, and seeing that it lacked so much diversity that I was charged to say, what can I do about diversifying this industry? And so mm -hmm. I got certified as a diversity professional and trainer. I took organizations through cultural competency frameworks. I've worked with individuals and people at these organizations to understand their own cultural competency and where they lie and how they feel about it. I take them through curated conversations and caring conversations um, to, to help them to identify better with their peers and understand their peers a little bit better. So yeah, all of it's um, definitely serendipity. It's all led to this place. And the real funny thing about that is that I never talked about my home getting burned down until maybe about six, I guess it's been about six years now. So even friends that I grew up that knew me my whole life, um, I never spoke of it. I never spoke of it. I never, one, um, gave it recognition and I never acknowledged it. And I think that those things are so important for atonement. They're so important to atone. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that with us and with the audience. It's such a such a incredible story how you were able to overcome um something so traumatic and still maintain that curiosity still maintain what some might call a beginner's mind an open mind where you know just automatically judge people which i think everyone would feel similarly to me and saying like well you would have every right to have um negative associations and biases towards the entire group of people because of what a certain subset has done. So I'm just always really inspired when I think about what you've gone through and how you've like learned from it and grown from it and then helped other people grow from your difficult experiences. So thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. Yeah. And that really leads well into like you're saying, recognition and acknowledgement uh, in terms of atonement. Um, and then looking more specifically at environmental and energy justice, I'm curious to hear more about really all of those components with your interest and passion for environmental and energy justice. So if you could just, yeah, speak to that, I'd love to hear 
I'd love to hear more on that. Absolutely. So when you think of um, environmental and energy justice, especially in, well, you can't talk about one without talking about the other. Um, people talk about energy justice, such as energy burden. Um, we know a lot of families right now are struggling to even pay to have air conditioning in their homes or a lot of elderly suffer because um, it's extreme heat, um, the droughts that we're having across the U.S. in particular. Um, but we have to recognize that it, you know, energy burden disproportionately impacts minority communities. Um, particularly Black and Brown communities. Um, and so when we talk about energy justice, most of the times people who are impacted by energy justice are also impacted by environmental justice. These are in neighborhoods that are subjected to probably some of the most um, the, uh, unclean water or um, you know, a lot of smog and carbon offsets. So when you start thinking about environmental justice, again, you can't tackle energy justice without tackling environmental justice and all of those things. Um, you cannot talk about environmental justice without talking about systemic racism. So um, what has bred environmental justice? It comes from systemic racism, which goes back to redlining. And um, for those listeners, um, or watchers of today's webinar, if you think about redlining and how that started, it was a, a racist practice to keep, um, you know, minority families, in particular Black families, out of certain neighborhoods, but it kept them closer to, they built highways around these neighborhoods and um, directed the most traffic around these neighborhoods. It was already hard for people to get um, housing or, you know, be able to purchase homes um, and develop economic wealth, but they did it in the um, probably the most cruel way, which now you see some, some of the um, federal dollars that the Biden administration has um, has implemented go towards like Justice 40 programming. So Justice 40 is where 40% of those dollars have to go into, um, you know, to correct some of these uh, systemic racist um, things that happened in the past. So, yeah. So when you talk, when you're talking about um, environmental justice and energy justice, you really do have to look at where it stems from um, and why we are where we are at the cornerstone now of having these issues. Um, hopefully there are going to be some federal measures that will um, help to bring the bring communities along and become equitable. And that's what we're really talking about is equity, where it's even. Not We're not saying like make these communities better than the community you live in or this person lives in, but to make it even equitable. Um, you also can't talk about systemic racism, environmental justice, if you're not also looking at the lens of the economic um, injustices, because all of that is, again, tied in together. There's the social, um, social economic uh, injustices such as education, um, schooling, jobs, fair pay, all of that really ties in together. So as part of, um, I think you mentioned earlier as you were introducing me, some of the work that I'm doing, but I really started thinking a lot about this through my work with the Energy Equity Project, which the University of Michigan 
It was originally led by Dr. Tony Reams, who now works for the Department of Energy. But his group there is still doing amazing work um, with understanding what does um, equity and energy look like? And can we, um, and as part of that work, the group that I worked in was recognition group. And so you really do have to recognize that all of these past things contribute to today's problem, not only recognition of it, but acknowledgement acknowledgement of it. So recognizing it is one thing, but until people start to acknowledge um, in every conversation that I have in every webinar that I do about either environmental justice or being able to bring communities along in the energy transition, I have to start by saying that we have to recognize that these problems stem from systemic racism. And I always have that conversation because I think people want to a lot of times start from today and like, well, what do we do now? But today, starting today without acknowledging the past and while, without recognizing and then acknowledging the past is not going to be, a, we're not going to be able to move forward until people get that acknowledgement that this is what happened. And that's mindfulness. That's truly being mindful. That's truly thinking about others and being present and saying that we are going to take into consideration how a group of pop or a population of people have been treated. And not only are we going to recognize it, but we're going to acknowledge it. And we're going to say, here's how we move forward after that. That was kind of long-winded, but. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I love how you brought in mindfulness into that recognition and acknowledgement of systemic racism into these injustices. Um, because a lot of times people may, you know, like kind of spiritually bypass or, you know, just be present with mindfulness, but there's a whole context. There's a whole, you know, there's a, there's an entire past that led us up into the direction that we're in now. And so really just coming together and like understanding and honoring and acknowledging all of these injustices before we can move into justice. Because as we've talked about many times before, there isn't justice. There, there's justice because we have injustices. Yes. Um, I'm glad you said that. They're absolutely like the word injustice means that there was no justice. <laughs> you know, the fact that you need to have justice, environmental justice, energy justice, means that injustices have happened. Right. So you gotta be able to recognize what are the injustices that have happened? Why, are, why is it called energy justice? Why is it called environmental justice? So what were the injustices? You can't acknowledge the justice without going to the injustices first. Yeah. And thinking about kind of cultivating that awareness a lot of it is a, a personal practice, but I would say, and how do you think we can kind of cultivate and elevate awareness on a larger scale so that more people can recognize and acknowledge and honor that this past has occurred, that so much you know, systemic racism and white supremacy and all of these systems of oppression that have led into where we are, how do you think you know, elevating 
cultivating mindfulness and wellness around these topics can, I guess, be more widespread? I think that we have to, um, we have to talk. We have to talk. We have to be able to talk to one another. I led a session recently with a group and we spoke about, um, it was a, it was an unconscious bias session. And in this unconscious bias session, this group just mentioned that they had never heard each other's stories. They never, they didn't even know like some of their peers that they work closely with um, had that background or felt a certain way about something. I'm like, like, and it always amazes me because I'm like, oh, you guys work so well, like work together. Like, how do you not know one another? You're not inquisitive enough to ask, like, you know, so um, having these conversations, what I call caring conversations or um, striking up conversations, whether you bring in an external person to help you do this, if you don't know how to do it, um, can be so beneficial. Um, not only doing it in a, in an organization setting, but even doing it with your friends, um, your family. When I think about, um, how I developed these caring conversations for our teams at work, I, it brings me back to when I brought up the conversation with my family about our house burning down, being burnt down. Um, I had never taught, we never talked about it as a family. And this is for years. This happened in 88. And I was in my, you know, mid forties before we even spoke about it. So I'm talking about 20 something years had gone by before as family members that we even talked about it or how it impacted us or what we felt about it. But when I tell you that we had that first conversation and it, I, and when I look at it now, I'm the one that brought it up. And I was like, well, how did you guys feel? Like, how are you guys feeling about this? Because these feelings are starting to come up for me. And I have no one else to share this with, but because we all experienced it together. Like, what did you do? Like, how did it impact you? What did, how did you feel? And it was just so, it was almost, refre- it was like a release. Again, that recognition, like I finally recognized that this was something that happened to me, you know? And I think a lot of people who go through things, you know, like either you don't want to be seen as the victim or you, and I know for me, it was that, and I didn't want to be known as, oh, that's that girl that that thing happened to. And so I did not want to take that on, but all those years just to never see speak about it. When I think about it, it was like really weird, but I think a lot of survivors of traumatic experiences, and that was what I would like to call that, that type of um, racism that happened to my family was an ex- extreme racism. Um, you have extreme racisms and you have the everyday racisms, right? Um, I think we all just kind of put it away in this little box just to protect ourselves from reliving it or reliving the emotion of it. But in that moment, when we, once we recognized it together and once we actually acknowledged like, yeah, this is how it impacted me. And this is how I feel about it. And it was such a release and so much freedom in that um, to be able to do that. So 
you know, I think having conversations with people um, opens up things that you never think that you would say or that you might feel um, compelled to do in the moment. I've had people have conversations with me. They're like, I've never told anyone about my racist father, or I never told anyone about this. Or, And I'm like, you know, this is a no judgment zone. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I don't bring judgment. We are who we are as, as a collective of our experiences in this life. And, you know, be unapologetic about who you are and the things that have happened in your life, because that is what made you who you are. That's what gives you the thoughts and the and the emotions and, um, you know, of, of the person that you are. So you can't be afraid to, to be yourself, even if it's an unpopular opinion of most. It's so, but it's truly to you. If that's who you are, be who you are. So yeah, having more conversations absolutely is what's going to, to help putting more policies um, and practices. So those who are involved in doing policy work and working in legislation and running for, um, you know, different city councils or whatever, uh, political positions, think about how um, the policies that you enact in, uh, affect people for right now, as well as for the long term. Think about when you have that diversity and you have that cultural competency built into you to where you can, you can see past just yourself and your family, and you're starting to think about others in a mindful way, and you can pass policies to protect people and protect children and protect um, the vulnerable uh, communities, that's when you really start to get it. So, you know, I implore people to work on self first. Um, I always think of it in the self-other system approach. Once you work on yourself, um, it can't help but then to impact your day-to-day, your who you connect with, your friends, your family, those uh, networks that are within your purview. And then it will impact the system, which is the larger community at a whole. So, but you have to do the self-work. Yeah, and I really appreciate you bringing up that framework because so frequently when talking about things like mindfulness and wellness, people think that it's only in facing, it's only about you. And then oftentimes people could conflate that and think that it means you're being selfish. But in reality, you can look at mindfulness and wellness and you could look at recognition and acknowledgement with yourself. You have to be honest with yourself first. Then you can start to look around you. I've already cultivated this within myself. How do I then apply it to the people around me? And once you understand that systems are just people organized, basically abiding by one common story or multiple common stories, then you realize that you could be mindful of those and you can start to implement wellness in there as well. So that self other system um, way of thinking is really, really helpful. So thank you for bringing that up. You're welcome. Yeah. The self is the biggest, um, the biggest influence that you will ever have is the one on yourself, you know? Um, and, And when people always say like, you know, you can't control, the only thing you can control is yourself. And that's absolutely true. Um, my yogi instructor used to say that all the time, like, oh, you can, like, how are you, how will you react when this happens? Because all you can control is yourself. Things will happen every day, but you can only control how you respond, your response to them. Um, so you have to think of it. So the self is the biggest thing that you can um, 
you know, contribute to anything. And if you think about even in our work systems, if we're going to work every day and you think like I have to make all these decisions at work, if you're in tune with yourself and you know that every day I'm showing up and I'm going to do the right thing and I know that this is going to be the best part of my work or I know how I will um, connect the dots here. Like if you're so, if you're really centered in self, the work doesn't even become that hard for you because you already know who you are as a person, you know what you contribute, you know your strengths, you know if you have weaknesses and I'm going to have to go and grab Bob over here because he's stronger at that than I am. But it really comes down to knowing self and knowing like if I can't do all of this at once and I'm a procrastinator, I might need Jill to kind of help me stay on task. Know thyself. If you know yourself well, um, that's the biggest part of any struggle. And that includes, you know, cultural competency. You have to know where are the things that bend you. Like we, when, when you think of cultural competency within self, where are the things that give you influx here? So if you're thinking of a hard decision, if there's something that's hard for you to do or hard for you to say, you'll feel it because it's not a part of your natural being or natural course of what you would normally do. So that's how you know that you're starting to change when you start to feel it because you're thinking something different and doing thinking of doing something different than you normally would have done. And it makes it difficult. But that's always when it's the best time to kind of sit with yourself and say, but I know what's right and I know what I should do and think about what you're going to do. So I think we talked about that before. Like um, there's a term in, in diversity that you're not responsible for your first thought that you are responsible for your second thought and your first action. So, you know, when you think about like what your action is going to be, and if something in here is saying like, I want to do this, but I know that's probably not the right thing to do. And you stop for a second. And then you really think about, you're mindful and you really (laughs) think about what is the next thing? What is the next thing I do here? Would you mind sharing with us uh, a practice that you use to help you in that process of recognizing your thought, taking control of your second thought, and then taking control of your first action. I will. As a matter of fact, let me give this example of a time that I was completely wrong. So the best thing to know is that you can also you'll also make mistakes in this thing. It's you're human, and so. Um, I, I've shared this with the team before, and I used to get really emotional sharing this because I know that I am probably um, one of the largest supporters of the LGBTQIA community. Um, I can I consider myself an ally, um, have many friends and family, just, you know, but I don't always do the right thing. So there was a time I was flying um, on an airline um, and there um, um, was a trans- transgendered person on our, on our flight. And she obviously was in the midst of um, probably, you know, her transition. And um, so probably still, still looked a little male with female 
attributions, but was still beautiful nonetheless. And um, we were, you know, getting off of the plane and a flight attendant, a male flight attendant made a remark um, to me as if to like get my, you know, attention. And I didn't think he was speaking to me at first. I mean, he was just kind of scoffing as we were walking down in that little tunnel leading up and he scoffed and scoffed. And I said, I just looked, he goes, I can't believe that. And I'm like, excuse me. He's like, um, I don't know. Like they don't even look like a woman. Like they don't even look like a woman. And he said it loud enough to where she could hear. And I was like, I think she's fine. And he was like, I don't know. Like that's, that's just, I don't agree with that. Like she does. And I think he said, it doesn't look like you. It doesn't look like you. Like you can tell or something. And he was getting very loud. And I just was like, um, I actually don't, I just said, I actually don't have a problem with it. Um, and I think she's fine. And I walked off, but I felt in that moment that I should have turned around and I should have addressed that man and said, leave her alone. She is beautiful. Um, you know, just in my full proclamation of like being supportive instead of, I was very bypassed about it. Like I didn't want to call attention to myself. I was trying not to really call attention to um, her, but I think it was more about myself. But in that moment when I could have spoke up, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know either the words to say. And I kept replaying that in my mind, like for days, like I should have said this. I should have said that. I should have taken up for her. I should have, you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't, I don't always, people don't always know what the right thing to do when they're in a situation where there is an injustice being done. But you have to give yourself grace because we're all learning this. We're all learning it. There's been times that I've been stellar. And I asked, uh, typically what I would do is if somebody made an off-colored comment or remark, I'd get real inquisitive of them. <laughs> to them. I would say, well, what makes you think that way? Or why do you feel that way? Or why is, why is what they do so important to you, bother you so much? I would have stopped, I should have, you know, I would have gotten really inquisitive and, and I've done that several times and I don't know why this time it would, I didn't do it, but typically what I would do is just get very inquisitive. And that's usually the best thing for people to do is when they're faced in a situation where they don't know how to respond, ask a question like, well, what makes you think like that? Did something happen to you that makes you feel that way? and see if the person responds. And if they don't respond, that's okay, because I bet they're going to go home and think about how their actions were that day, and maybe that they could think something different. So always lead with the inquisitiveness, but also know, give yourself some grace if you don't do the right thing, because we're, we're, we're still all learning this stuff. Yeah, thank you for sharing that story. And um, also, thank you for sharing that concept of we're all human, we all make mistakes, because that's really the foundation for self-compassion when we can realize that as a human, we're going to make a mistake. As a human, we are going to have insecurities. As a human, things are going to go in ways that are counter to the plans that we have. And if we can just know that for a fact and not hold on to this idea that I can control the things that happen around me, 
but really all you can control is yourself and your actions. And I was just having a conversation earlier today and we were talking about how frustrating it is to watch people or groups of people make the same mistake over and over and over. And it's really great that you were able to have an experience that felt like you made a mistake, but then learn something from it and then come back better the next time. Because if we do make mistakes and we can derive lessons from those mistakes, then you're able to, you know, just progress in your DEI journey, progress in your life journey, and hopefully be more effective and more impactful the next time that something arises where there's an opportunity for you to stand up for an injustice. Absolutely. Like, I'm definitely not a perfect person. I've made many and many and many a mistake. Um, And I think that Honestly, that's probably why, and, and I bring these things up to people, and I think that's probably why people will hire me because they're like, I'm not the perfect DEI person. I'm going to help you get there, but I want you to understand that I make those mistakes too. I have biases too that I work on um, all the time. And I think that that's um, really the, the true part of engaging with people is like understanding like, Yes, while I'm, I'm giving you tools and resources that will help you in your journey, um, that we all have it. We all, most of us, if, you know, we've lived long enough, um, probably still have it. And it's going to take generations and generations and generations. And even then, some people will still have those biases. So, you know, we can only we can only work on ourselves and and try and get to a, a place of, um, of of competency within ourselves and not ex- and not you're harsh on uh, my 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 diversity um, teacher uh, always said we're we're harsh on the problem but not on the people harsh mm. on the problem but not on the people um, and understanding that we all have our every some of us, all of our experiences, all of our social experiences, all of our family environment, our religions, all of those things, we are made up of who we are from, you know, since our inception on this earth. And to think that all of that goes out the window, just because you want to become diverse is like, no. And, And that doesn't also mean that you're not, um, you can, you can still be a champion for diversity and still have biases and still have your own, own things to work through, but absolutely want to see uh, diversity and integration happen. But, you know, um, we're all still, we're all a progress and work. And so I try to be, hard, again, harsh on the problem, not on the people and be inquisitive with the people. Yeah, that really reminds me of, like kind of how mindfulness too can be so helpful in creating a gap between that first thought, a second thought and that action where if we do have a more cultivated mindfulness practice and compassion practice, we can notice that unconscious bias becomes more conscious. We have those thoughts. If we're not even aware of that, we have these thoughts um, circulating through our heads that might be racist, sexist, et cetera. Um, then we won't be able to take that gap. And even like for me, like I definitely will have moments where I'll say something and, and then, you know, I have an, I have a reaction instead of a response, a a calculated, well thought out response where I did pause. So sometimes I I don't do that. And 
um, that's when, you know, kind of the mindfulness and compassion piece is really helpful in other ways to really make amends and, you know, work on being a better ally in other ways. But that really reminded me of that kind of pause where it's, you know, as we continue to practice, it can help to create more space, um, can help create like more grounding in our practice of hopefully, you know, we will say the right thing, but you know, things are going to happen. We're not always going to say the right thing, but as we go through these experiences, like you did, it only can just be teaching moments for us. And yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. You're right. And that is mind being mindful. When you think something, stop in that moment and be mindful and say, I know why I'm thinking this, but I really shouldn't because that does not equate to everybody. Okay. Let me do this. And it really only takes you a few seconds to be more mindful than just to speak on whatever that bias is. So just stop before you say something, because what happens is there's an impact that happens when you're not mindful. I believe I told you all um, the story about the young, young man who was bicycling to um, basketball practice um, it might, if it wasn't you all, then I apologize, but I'll, I'll tell this story real quick. Um, in the news, it was, uh, last year or the year before there was a young man, he might've been 14 or 15 years old in Florida. Someone have to look up the news story because it did happen. And he was bicycling through his neighborhood. It was about five in the morning, but he had early basketball practice. Um, he got stopped by a neighbor um, that held him until the police arrived. He, police called because the neighbor thought he was breaking into houses. Um, this was a young black man. Police get there. They call his parents. His parents show up. Um, and he was detained by this neighbor for probably a good 30, 45 minutes before the police showed. Um, the boy's parents come. They're like, he was on his way to basketball. Every, you know, got checked out. The story was true. Do you imagine now how this young man sees himself before that experience? Where if the neighbor just would have stopped and said, he might be going somewhere. I don't see him stopping at any houses. Like, let him, let me mind my business and let him go about his. He doesn't look like he's bothering anyone. But now, that could potentially change the trajectory of that whole young man's life. He could see himself as a criminal. He could see himself differently. He knows how people may react to him, which is not, which is going to take away from his confidence. So that one bias, that one judgment that that person did could possibly change the trajectory of that young man's life from this moment forward. So that's why it's so important for us to be mindful, especially when it comes to biases and, and racism, to be mindful of how that changes a person's life. And I talk about that all the time when I talk about extreme racism. I think about what my family experienced, one, and the fact that we never talked about it and how each of us, our lives were different because of it father no longer being in the home, um, you know, just all the things that happened to each of us kids, you know, because 
of that one action by that racist group. I think about Ahmaud Aubrey's family and how their lives are forever changed. No grandchildren, no, you know, from him, no um, Christmases, no holidays, how the world could be changed. Who knows what he could have presented to this world um, that was now different. I think about George Floyd. I think about his daughter, what it would be like for her growing up without a father. Um, you know, will she be able, you know, people will forget in years and will she be able to go to college? You know, will she act out because she doesn't have a father figure or her father's gone or that she's in so much pain because of the loss of him that she doesn't know what to do with all of that. But that's the thing is that those immediate actions, when you're sitting there interviewing a candidate who has dreads and you say to yourself, I'm not going to hire him because he has dreads and every employer thinks the same thing and they don't hire him. How does that impact his family and his bill? And like, he's probably the best candidate suited because you don't like the way he looks or your first perception is incorrect. That's going to impact the rest of his life. So we have to start thinking differently because while we don't think that our one little impulse reaction or our one thought leads to something, it impacts people. It impacts people at the end of the day. So we have to be very mindful of how we, and considerate of how we treat people. I heard this quote that went something along the lines of, and it conveyed the sentiment of, uh, what you leave behind in the world isn't what's carved into stone monuments, but what's woven into the fabric of other people's lives. And that is just such a great example. You never know what impact you'll have. You never know what interaction that may seem like nothing to you could be a core memory to someone else that years later they talk about and have to process in therapy or even potentially never process and just kind of always carry that baggage from. So thank you for providing that context, that insight and giving us that perspective that can really help us have more empathy and more compassion for people who we run into that we might not think we matter to them, but you know, we just might. So let's act as if that's true. Let's act as if we're trying to have a positive impact on everyone we come into contact with. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely hit the nail. Cause then what if you're in an interview with that gentleman with, with dreads and or dreadlocks and immediately you think no because I don't like his hair but then you say okay like let me let me finish this interview and he says something really poignant and really to the point about you know the business aspect and then you're like okay okay like maybe I can see past it and then you hire him and he you know works really hard as your best performer on the team um he's able to go and buy a home and pull his family out of a bad neighborhood um, let's say, and then he becomes, you know, a VP or a um, CEO of the company one day. And then you can say like, oh, I made a, you know, pretty good decision there. I went past my bias and I did something right. So we really have to think about like for the good and for the bad, um, how our own decisions have impacted people's lives or how they can and potentially impact people's lives. Absolutely. It's so powerful. Yeah. It really is like a butterfly effect. Things will 
every day, like, and not to put too much pressure on people, but also to put, you know, a little bit of pressure to, to know that like everything we do really matters and is important. So that self-cultivation that we were talking about earlier, making sure that we, the energy, the actions, the words that we say are not just thrown around, you know, we're actually being conscious and um, working from a place of compassion and kindness and yeah. I, can go on. I can go on in that forever. That's why the self is so important. Like you have to yeah. do the work on the self and you have to know who you are and, and be okay with who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that way you don't, you don't, it doesn't bother you with who other people are. If you're okay with who you are, it doesn't bother you as much with other people being who they are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and for the interest of time, I wanted to make sure we could get to some of the participants' questions to see if we have any questions from our participants for some Q&A. Um, so this is the opportunity for everyone to ask some questions to Pam. And um, if not, then I could always follow up with some questions. You know, we got plenty of those with that. Case. I got a question <laughs> for y'all too. <laughs> All right. Should I go with my question for you guys? Um, yeah, sure. While we're waiting for people to type in their questions, that, that could work for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. So when you guys think of um, your work and mindfulness, especially as it, how it connects to DEI, what would you like for people to um, connect to the most when you, they think about mindfulness in this work? Yeah, for me, I really want to kind of highlight when people especially talking about mindfulness it is a it's that literally has the word mind and it is a mind training but for me and my recent work just in my own personal practice it's felt more like heartfulness it's felt more like a cultivation of how can i feel a sense of empathy how can i cultivate this compassion for people how can i elevate my awareness so that not only am i just you know seeing everyone as a as a human, but also honoring everyone's differences as well. Um, do you want to say anything as well? Yeah. So first, thank you for asking. Um, I'm very passionate about mindfulness and hope that, you know, I'll be able to maintain this practice throughout my entire life and, you know, have a pretty good feeling about my ability to be able to do that because mindfulness really doesn't require anything other than you to care enough to continue the practice on your own time. And that's something that I would really like people to know. Mindfulness is readily accessible here and now. There is nothing that can get in the way of you practicing mindfulness besides you making this, the decision not to, or you failing to make the decision to. Um, it requires nothing other than like I said before, and like Jacob just mentioned, you know, the heartfelt desire to change, the heartfelt desire to grow, the heartfelt desire to live a more examined and a more meaningful, purposeful life. I love it. Great answers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And um, yeah, just as we're starting to real, oh, there's a there's a question. So I, I digress and um, I'll read this. So someone anonymous attendee said, I agree that checking questions are really crucial and helpful, but personally, I usually just respond doing well, even if I'm not. What advice would you have for someone that has trouble sharing how they're actually feeling or are uncomfortable sharing because of how they may be perceived? 
Um, sometimes I will ask the question, um, give me one word to describe how you're arriving today. So it makes you think like you actually have to give me a word and it's an okay. I mean, you might come back and just say, fine. Okay. But that's going to tell me if everyone else is saying frazzled, um, bothered, busy, if everyone else is using other words and you just say fine or okay, I know you're probably not fine or okay. So I'll probably then go back to say, would anybody like to express it even more or say anything else? And if you're just not a person who communicates in that way, I, I mean, one, that's okay. Come as you are. That's okay if you don't communicate in that way. If you want to share more, one day you'll get to a point where you'll want to. So then I would encourage you to say, let me do the check-in question. Why don't you ask questions of your peers? I um, mean, we do rotate those. Uh, we rotated the meetings and the check-in questions as well. So not the same person is asking everyone else um, each day. Like the next person who's leading the meeting would then have to, you know, put the check-in question there as well as have to answer it. So if you put yourself in the position where you have to answer a question, and they always don't have to be about what you're feeling. They could be, what is your favorite food? What do you like to do on a Saturday night? What is your um, favorite animal? Do you even like animals? It could be any kind of question that you want to ask. And so these are just questions to get you to get to know your peers. Um, you know, you can say how you're arriving today and people don't want to jump into the deep stuff. And sometimes people do. But what the check-in question does, it gets you prepared and gets your mind prepared to have conversations with your peers. Like if you didn't know that Kim or Shante had a dog or a cat, you know, and now, you know, after today's meeting that, oh, my cat is my, you know, that's, you know, my favorite animal. His name is Tommy. Um, then when you see her in the hall, you could be like, how is Tommy? I didn't know you had a cat and you can have a conversation, you know, so it's, it's preparing you to have conversations with people. So don't feel the need to have to, you know, blurt out your life story on a check-in question, but it's a good way just to get people to see who you are. Absolutely. And I think, um, as we, before we wind down, I just wanted to add as well that you can always take just a, a brief moment to check in with yourself too. Cause I don't know if you noticed when you asked me the question, I, I took a pause and I was, was like, how, how do I feel this moment? I'm not sure, you know? So so I pause and obviously you don't have to wait minutes before you respond, but you can always take a moment, check in with your body. How are you feeling in this moment? And then respond from that place and see, see where it goes from there. And that honest, more vulnerable place that you're, that you're speaking from can often lead to greater connection with that other person as well. So um, that can be a helpful approach. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And so I think it's a perfect time to wind down. I do want to be respectful of everyone's time. It was amazing having you, Pam, like your presence and knowledge and everything that you share with us today was incredibly enlightening and powerful. And we really appreciate your time. Once again, Source Wellness's vision is to become the most trusted and respected source of highly of high quality DEIMW programming for organizations, 
For more information on how you and your organization can partner with Source Wellness to introduce programming and strategic culture change, make sure to go to our website at www.sourcewellness.co. Also make sure to follow Source Wellness on LinkedIn and also on Instagram as well, which is at its source wellness. Um, Pam, is there anything you'd like to share in terms of where we can follow your work as well? We can also place in the chat your website. Um, yeah, that's so perfect. Sure we, we do that as well. Yeah, it's just um, my website is um, integrated solutions llc.com. Um, if you um, guys need any any help or any resources with cultivating conversations, of course, um, reach out to me. I'm happy to help. Or if you need some um, cultural competency work done and frameworking done within your organizations or um, understanding how to work better with external um external um, partners, whether that be nonprofit organizations, other for-profits, um, communities, just reach out. I'm happy to help. Um, and yeah, you guys have a blessed day. Thank you for having me. As always, I love our conversations. Um, and every time we talk, I always feel so calm and peaceful after. It's just always feels so good. So thank you all for all that you guys are doing to, to bring these um, topics in these discussions to the forefront. Thank you. Thank you so much, thank Pam. You. And thank you everyone who attended this webinar today. We really appreciate you all taking the time to sit and learn and hopefully, oh, listen and hopefully learn. Wonderful. Have a beautiful day. And until next time, we'll do this in a month. So, <laughs> all righty. Take care. Thank you so much, Pam. Bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Intersection podcast, and we appreciate your interest in learning more about DEIMW. Our intention with this series is to spread awareness and to highlight the crucial intersection between diversity, equity, inclusion, mindfulness, and wellness. We hope that raising awareness will drive more organizations to prioritize the well-being of their employees. For more information on how you and your organization can partner with Source Wellness, introduce programming and strategic culture consulting, visit the links in our podcast description. In the description, you'll find links to our website, LinkedIn, and Instagram. On our website, you can book a free discovery session to learn how Source Wellness can provide value to your organization. Thank you for listening, and until next time.